And so someone says, you know, I am just in love with Jesus and I love my same sex spouse and we are faithful to one another and we want to do ministry and, and all of that. I'm not going to say, well, you, you fall outside the lines of this, these prescriptions. I, I'm going to say, I'm going to believe what you said. Mm-hmm. You love God and you're doing what you're doing in all good conscience. And you are operating under faith, working through love. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast. In our conversations over the years, there have been things that have come up, and I thought, ooh, I want to talk more with Nathan about that. And we're not getting around to those things because our podcast has a plan, and we're working through uh, a series. Mm -hmm. And and that's good, and it's focused. But I wanted some time to not be focused and to random. Nice. Randomly bounce from one thing to another. Ooh, I like random. Yeah. So I hardly have any notes here or any clarity on how I want to handle this, and I don't claim that any of these... Uh, there's no, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Okay. Uh, it's just, here's what's come to mind. So here, let me just start with this one. Okay. Uh, in our podcast, we're talking about how the gospel is rescue from the corruption of this world, mm-hmm. from being corrupt, from being corrupted by the world. And there's passing references made in that discussion to future judgment. And it's, basically downplayed like it yeah. may be there but it's not the focus of the gospel or of the preaching in acts right and i keep thinking we've got to talk more about that because like i'm reading romans and i'm seeing a number of references to the wrath that is to come yeah and we're saved from the wrath that is to come and there's a ton of teaching and reference to judgment mm-hmm. in the bible and so i think it's maybe a point of confusion or needs clarification um and it's just something people are wrestling with. Yeah. So, you know, what what about hell and wrath and judgment? How can I believe in this? Should I believe in this? Is there an alternative to belief in this sort of thing? Yeah. So maybe you could tell me what it is you uh, think the gospel, in, in what sense does the gospel address the future judgment, if there is one. Mm-hmm. We'll start there. Okay. So the question is, what is the? How does the gospel address future judgment? And uh, the way I understand judgment is that uh, you know there's been at least for Israel the, there was this idea of the Yom Yahweh, the Day of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know the prophets are like, you guys keep wanting the Day of the Lord. You're looking forward to it, but it's not going to be what you think, and that it's going to be a dark day for many. And that it's going to be a time of God's judgment and his wrath and all of that. Um, and so I see the day of the Lord as being a very um, a physical cataclysm in this terra firma that's going to happen. Um, that it seems that there, there will be a lot of the things that people think of in terms of some sort of a last battle. It seems that there's some sort of a a major advancing army that comes, besieges Israel. Now, that's happened over the centuries. Um, You know, it happened under Antiochus in, what, 160 B.C., um, Epiphanes or whatever his name was. And then, and he, you know, all the the things that he did that were blasphemous to the Jews. And so he was a type of an Antichrist. And then it happened again in 70 A.D. with Titus and you know, I guess before that it happened with the Babylonians and came. And, and so Israel is besieged and then they're overcome um, again and again through history. Now, we know that after 70 A.D., it just 
the temple wasn't rebuilt. The city wasn't rebuilt. It's been a long time since then. Um, but there seems to be, I, I think, yet a, a cataclysm coming that's going to involve physical Israel somehow. Um, and that's probably a tangent. Um, but th- I think that would be associated with a final deliverance and a, and a bringing to close of human history as we know it um, that will come at the return of Christ. And so various and passages. Now, one, one of the things that's unique uh, about the Jewish worldview is that there's this linear view of history, and history is heading somewhere, and it's heading toward this final judgment. Right. And New Testament theology says that what one of the things that was unique about the coming of Christ is that the, 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 the kingdom of God broke into the world in advance of the final judgment. Right. And um, sort of, uh, and so there's now the overlap of the ages. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the future world has broken in, and we're living partly in the the former world and partly in the future world. And so there's this revision in the New Testament and in the gospel. There's this revision of this um, Jewish uh, uh, vision. Right. Of the of of the day of the Lord, right? It's been revised. Now it's now that the Lord has come into the world. He's offering mm-hmm. offering salvation for a period of time before the judgment. Yeah. So, um, really, and and that may seem you, you're using the word revision and stuff, but obviously God doesn't need to revise. You know, He didn't write the story wrong, and and there's a lot of speculation or beliefs uh, on the part of people who are more dispensational dispensational that God planned on redeeming Israel at Christ's first coming and they rejected him. And so, you know, God had to go back to plan, you know, had to go to plan B, which is the church age and all of that. Um, it doesn't seem likely to me that God would have to have a plan B. Um, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So it seems that, uh, and Paul seems to notice in Romans 11 that the, the rejection of, of Jesus by Israel was a part of the plan, uh, that it was to bring in what is called the times of the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I think that we find in the book of Ruth the big um, outline of God's plan with humankind. And so that's one of those mysteries. It's one of those things in the Old Testament that, you know, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it, and you realize, hey, there's more going on here than we knew. And, and maybe so. It would take be good for me to take a minute and just yep. kind of give you the outline of the book of Ruth. Yeah, this is long form. Sure, right. We're here we relaxing. go. Yeah, yeah. I'm drinking coffee. Yeah. So the significance of the book of Ruth is that, you know, it from Israel's perspective, that's the book that's read on the day of Pentecost. Um and it is a book about harvest time, that there's harvest coming in. So that's kind of the backdrop of the book of Ruth. Um, I don't know who named the book of Ruth, but I, I think it would be more accurately named the book of Naomi, because Naomi is the character that we see at the very beginning of the book in, in verse 2, you know, that we talk about there was a man from Bethlehem and Judah whose name was... Um, I think um, Elimelech, and then and his wife's name was uh, Naomi, and and so she's really mentioned very early on, um, and that she's at the very end of the book. That there's this final chorus, and that the celebration isn't about Ruth, but it is about Naomi, and so the book really is is the arc of Naomi, um, and so that's just point one to make is that if you can imagine 
from our perspective, we like the, the love story and we like the idea of, um, of Ruth and, and we like laudable characters and people that seem to have virtue. And so we focus on, on Ruth. Naomi's kind of a downer. She's, she at one point names herself Mara. I mean, she's bitter, you know, so we're really going to focus on her. She's older, uh, you know, so we, we relegate her to this. Ageism. Yeah. We're, we're ageist, especially when it comes to women. Um, and, and yet the story seems to be about her primarily. And, and so, um, just a, a quick overview of the story. She's married to this guy named Elimelech. They live in the promised land. Uh, famine comes. She moves with Elimelech to the region of Moab with her husband and her two sons, Malon and Kilian. Malon and Kilian married to Gentile Moabite women um, who are Orpah and Ruth. Now, along the line, Elimelech passes away, and then um, uh, Malon and Kilian pass away as well. And now you have these three widows, one Jewish, two Gentile, no progeny at this point. And, uh, and so there's this story of, of now Naomi's completely bereft. She's left the land, left her um, inheritance. She's left um, her really religious faith in terms of the, the people that she's around and the observance. She's left without a husband. She's left without sons. And so, you know, in the ancient Near East, if your husband died, your adult son would take care of you. But if your adult son then died, you're just host, you know. And, and so now here are these three widows. And um, there's this kind of touching scene we like to focus on where the, the daughters-in-law are kind of clinging to Naomi. And Naomi says, hey, go home. And Orpah takes her up on the offer. She goes home. But Ruth says, no, I'm not going anywhere. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. They move back to Bethlehem, and, you know, um, even though they're back in the land of promise, Naomi is still bereft. She's still without her inheritance. And so while this chorus of women come to kind of celebrate that she's back, she says, well, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Lord has made my way very bitter. And, uh, and all she has is this um, daughter-in-law who is willing to play this game where she marries this guy named Boaz, and Boaz is what's called a kinsman redeemer. So he has to be a part of her family, and in doing that, they he marries Ruth, and whatever child they have will inherit Naomi's estate. Elimelech's estate will restore all of that to Naomi. Okay, so that's this idea of the kinsman redeemer. Boaz marries not Naomi, but Ruth. And then they have Obed, and Obed is, you know, goes on to become the kinsman redeemer. Boaz is called the kinsman redeemer until Obed is born. And then Obed is now the kinsman redeemer, and he redeems all that Naomi has lost. And so at the end of the book— You, you mean have, like through his work? No, just like, by his being born, by his being the heir— of Elimelech's uh-huh. estate. He then and, is eligible to inherit Elimelech's estate. Exactly. And and because he's not, I mean, he's somewhat blood-related, but because he's technically um, Naomi's grandson, then then she is able to now move back into the estate, inherit, you know, inherit it in, in extension, you know, through Obed. So the, the, all the, that Naomi had lost through this process is redeemed through Obed, who is now the kinsman redeemer for Naomi. So um, there's the story. And and for a lot of us, we may not fully appreciate it, but 
When you begin to drill down uh, this arc of, of kind of this descent uh, into utter loss and then a redemption that comes really through the hands of a Gentile, uh, through the cooperation of a Gentile, um, and then the full redemption that comes through the outcome of this union between a Gentile woman and the kinsman redeemer. Mm-hmm. This arc um, begins to map exactly on to everything that has happened and will happen to the nation of Israel. Okay. So uh, you really had to look at the names. The names all have meanings. So Elimelech means God is king. Okay. Malon and Kilian mean sickly and wasting away. Okay. Naomi means my delight. Mara, Naomi's alter ego, means bitter. Orpah means stubborn. Um, and Ruth means friendly or friend. Okay. So, and then Boaz means God is my strength, and Obed means servant. So, just bear with me. It seems to me that if you look at Israel's history, God was their king, Elimelech. Mm-hmm. And yet they wanted to be among the Gentiles. They wanted a king like all the other nations had. So they yep. rejected God as their king, and they wanted a king like the other nations. So Naomi and Elimelech move among the Gentiles. Israel moves among the Gentiles. They begin to take a Gentile approach to the monarchy. Okay. Quickly, that human monarchy splits into the northern and southern kingdoms where Jeroboam takes ten tribes with him, and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is left with two tribes in the south and Jeroboam in the north. Mm-hmm. So there's a divided kingdom, Malon and Kilian. Neither of these are of that kind of, they don't fulfill the vision of God. They're sickly and they're wasting away. Mm-hmm. And so these two kingdoms begin to devolve and corrupt over the centuries until one of them dies, if you will. The Assyrian kingdom comes and takes away the northern kingdom, 722 B.C., um, and that's those 10 tribes are nullified. And then in 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes over, wipes out Jerusalem, takes everybody captive. So if we think of Naomi as standing for Israel, God's delight, right? Out of you, God says uh, of Israel, you out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. You know, Israel is God's delight. And yet here is Israel bereft among the Gentiles, in the captivity. But there she finds her redemption, not through some Israelite savior initially, but through friendly Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Cyrus the Great becomes um, sympathetic and sends Israel back, even gives them the resources to build their temple. Um, as Israel has been out in the nations. They they formed all these synagogues, and Gentiles are very interested in this God of the Jews. Uh, they seem to be uniting themselves to Israel in some way, even though they're still Gentiles. And so the kinsman redeemer comes. Jesus, you know, um, comes because this story is also about the line of Jesus. It's about the line of David. The kinsman because redeemer Obed comes. Is, is an ancestor. Right, right. Um, but so Jesus comes as the kinsman redeemer, but he doesn't marry Israel. He marries the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. 
the Gentiles are the ones. You know, Israel rejects Jesus, and um, and the preaching of the gospel kind of turns toward these Gentile seekers who are ready-made audience. Uh, that Paul would go into these villages and towns, he would find the synagogue, and there were Gentiles who were listening at the window. They were interested in the God of the Jews, so they're friendly. Some of the Gentiles were stubborn, and some of them were friendly. Mm-hmm. And these friendly Gentiles then unite themselves to Christ, and I believe that we're in a period of gestation. In Revelation, it's called the times of the Gentiles, mm-hmm. Daniel as well, that there's this uh, we talk about, uh, I think it's in Luke, in the, in the older language, it says that, that when the times of, of Mary's pregnancy had reached their end, you know, that there's a, a period of time that is pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that the, the time where Gentile, the nations are being called in to this kingdom will reach an end, and then this coming, you know, then, then Christ will, according to Paul, the Jews will begin to return to Christ. And I think it will be because of the faith that the Gentiles have had and all of that. And so when Jesus returns, he's not, you know, the first, his first coming is Boaz and his second coming is Obed. And this Messiah is called the servant of God and Obed means servant. Um, And so not only I think is this a story of real people just because it's woven into a lineage, but it is an outline for God's plan with the whole world. God wants to bring everybody to him, everyone who believes. So when Jesus returns, there's going to be a redemption of what's been lost for Israel, but also an inclusion of all the Gentiles. So all that to say, why didn't Jesus just come and judge everybody right then? Because the plan has always been to include the nations in this big plan. So, but there's still coming a judgment. It's just coming at the end of the times of the Gentiles. Okay. The judgment that's still coming. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? What do you think it is? Yeah. I, it seems to me that it's a, a time when God is going to reclaim the righteous and it, and it seems, and you know, I did this recent video on this, but it seems that according to Daniel and other passages, Matthew 25, the people who've generally been righteous, they've been compassionate, they've been wise, um, that God is going to bring them back. Um, and we say, well, you know, where does that leave Jesus? Well, do you mean bring them back from the dead, or do you mean bring them back to him? What bring do you them mean? both, from the dead and to him, that mm-hmm. they are going to live in a renewed earth. It seems like from Isaiah 65 and 66 that there's this renewal of the earth, and that, so Jesus is coming here. If, if there wasn't, wasn't going to be a renewal of the earth, then Jesus wouldn't come here. He'd just call all of us to heaven and then just blip everything out of existence, you know. It seems that this planet, that even the region of this planet that's called Israel, that it's important for some reason that when John views, envisions the the culmination of the ages, that there's this city that's coming down out of the heavens. It's not like we're all just being spirited away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that there's going to be a time of judgment. It's not so much, and, and I've been thinking about this, you know, when we say the wages of sin is death, well, people who died have died. You know, they, they've paid the wages of sin. I mean, you know, how, how vindictive do you have to be to dig somebody up and kill them again? Mm-hmm. Or kill them for all eternity, right. whatever that would mean. Right. I mean, that would be pretty spiteful, especially if you said the wages of sin is death, especially if you said, hey, Jesus paid for your sins by dying. 
you know, he didn't pay for your sins by suffering eternally in hell. I mean, it doesn't seem to be a one-to-one. Mm-hmm. If he paid for your sins by dying, then, you know, it seems like that's been paid for. So it doesn't, it, it seems that what Jesus came to do was to give us eternal life now. He can't, you know, those who are his, we have been redeemed. Um, we watch America's Got Talent. I don't know if anybody else does, but... Uh, so you can get through America's Got Talent one of two ways, okay? One way is you can go through several rounds of elimination and come out on top. That's one way. Another way is if your story somehow resonates with the judges and your talent is of such a quality that they give you what's called the golden buzzer. And there's like, what, five of these in every season. So of all the possibilities, all the contestants – Five people would get to go straight through to the finals. They they can skip everything else, you mm-hmm. know. So they hit that golden buzzer, and it's a moment of grace. You know, mm-hmm. you, you get to skip the final exam. I mean, in this case, they still have the finals to go to. You know, they're not just giving them the prize. But in the case of the gospel, it is that those who have faith in Christ, you know, they get this golden buzzer of grace, and Jesus says they are not going to have to face this judgment as far as the question of whether they're in or out mm-hmm. so it, the, the judgment has been announced in advance right and this is justification by faith exactly so those who are of faith we're you know we're being offered the golden buzzer <laughs> you know uh, the blessings that come and, and that we are as you said we are invited to live the kingdom of god norms now and so the gospel is very much a right now thing you know you mentioned romans where Paul says, look, I'm going around and I'm preaching so that I can lead the nations to the obedience that comes from faith. And, and, and then he talks about in Romans 1, 18, he says, you know, hey, I'm, I'm preaching this gospel. And, and I'm preaching it because the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it is, pro, is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith. Uh, for it is written, the just will live by faith. Okay? And then in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of people who hide the truth in their unrighteousness. Okay? Then he goes on to describe how the wrath of God is revealed. That, That the wrath of God isn't necessarily, at least not as Paul conceives of it, revealed in some eternal suffering. It is revealed in the very sin that we begin to be mired in. That even in the prophets, it speaks of how God's wrath isn't so much this punitive wrath as it is a, a withdrawal of, of the, just the decency that we're supposed to live in and, and a leaving of humankind to, to our own devices. And so that's this, this wrath that's going on right now is the thing that the Gentile world is being given an invitation to escape Mm-hmm. Do you want to live in the, in the consequences of your own ungodliness, or do you want to be invited in among the people of God and, and to live a life that is joyful, purposeful, and happens to also be guaranteed to be resurrected and redeemed for all time, as opposed to everybody around the world who's lived who it's yet to be decided at least from our perspective i mean from god's i don't think it is but there seems to be a resurrection day where everybody all who are in their tombs will be brought back 
whether that's bodily or not, it, it, it seems strange to give somebody a body just so you can kill them again. But uh, Jesus says, don't be afraid of the one that can kill um, the body, but be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So hell seems to be a place of destruction where there's an, you know, an incineration and not a place of eternal conscious torment. Now, eternal conscious torment is, um, those are like technical terms. I've seen that in, you know, theological writings over the years, and it seems to be based on some of the sayings of Jesus, where mm-hmm. he's describing where the fire doesn't burn out or where their worm does not die or where they're, I, I can't remember the exact metaphors, yeah. but he seems to be describing something that is endless. Right. Sure. And um, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 66. In Isaiah 66, it says that they would go out and look on the bodies of those who have been defeated in this last battle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that they'll be burning, they'll be, they'll be piled up in the valley of Hinnom, and, you know, that they'll burn in a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm doesn't die. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is, he's, he's using something that's come before, but that prophecy that he's referring to speaks of physical bodies burning and not of some metaphysical realm. So it's, it's poetic language. It's this idea in revelation. It speaks of how the smoke of their torment will go up before him forever and ever. Again, that's prophetic language. Uh, I think it's from Jeremiah. I'll, I'll have to look it back up where it speaks of Edom being destroyed you know, the cities of Edom being destroyed and their smoke, the smoke of their destruction going up before God forever and ever. Well, you can't go over to the Holy Land right now and see it smoking. You know, the, again, mm-hmm. this is, this is, a, this speaks to a finality, but not to an eternal duration, mm-hmm. this kind of poetic language. So even as Jesus says, where the you know, flame is not quenched and the, and the worm doesn't die. Sure. The, you know, that is using this Isaiah 66 language. Even the word that Jesus used for hell was Gehenna, which spoke of the Hinnom Valley outside of Israel, a very physical place. Now, whatever he meant in terms of some metaphysical realm, well, that, that's conjecture mm-hmm. on all of our parts. It's certainly not something to build a key doctrine of the Christian faith over or to cast God as this eternal sadist mm-hmm. who is, um, you know, at least allowing people to suffer uh, forever that just seems to be more the creation of a a bit of a sadistic medieval mind um, than it is the Hebrew thinking even and you're thinking that is uh, that it's a simpler uh, and clearer statement where Paul says the wages of sin is death right and where you want to lean more put more weight on statements that are clearer right than yeah those that are metaphorical and figurative. And uh, the, you know, going back to Genesis 1, in that day you shall surely die. Right. So death seems to be the judgment on sin. Well, uh, death is is a disintegration. Um, James talks about as the body without the spirit is dead, so the faith without works are dead. Um, That there's, there's the existence, life is about integration, and that... When somebody dies, their body begins to disintegrate. There's this corruption that begins, you know, we begin to dissolve back into the earth. And so as the ancients are looking at that, they're seeing that that there's an integration that is life and a disintegration that is death. So 
really the immediate death is this um, disintegration between a person's physical self and their spiritual self. So Adam, in that day that he ate, did surely die if we understand that he was disintegrated. So, you know, in, in Genesis 2, I think 24 and 25, it says they were both, uh, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed, mm-hmm. right? Or in 2.25. And, and so here's this integration, this, this your physical condition and your internal uh, assessment of it, you are fully integrated. Then as soon as they eat the fruit, they realize they're naked, they're shamed, they're hiding from God, they're, they're blame shifting, that they're, they're disintegrated people that their inner self and outer self are out of sync. And so there's this disintegration that happens. When you get over to Romans 7, Paul talks about the effect of the law on him. He says, I once was alive apart from the law. You know, here's this child. He's not thinking, man, I shouldn't have done that. You know, he's, he's integrated in that his actions and his intentions are of one piece. And then the law comes and it says, you should not, you shall not lust. All of a sudden, he's like, wait, I, I shouldn't lust? What is lust? Wait, I, did I just do it? I think I did it. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, now he starts doing things that he doesn't want to do, that, that he feels bad about, and he has become disintegrated. He says the law, even though the law was holy, it took occasion sin through my flesh. Occasion. Sin took occasion through my flesh using the law, and it killed me. It slew me. So death is this disintegration of the self. And life is a reintegration of the self. Which is how we can be dead in our trespasses and sins, but God makes us alive through Christ Jesus. Exactly. What is that? Ephesians 2? Where is that? Yeah. Yeah. Ephesians 2. Um, exactly right. And it's why the particular infractions of the law are secondary. You know, we, we see morality and Christianity and stuff as following some written standard because that's who we are. We're legalists. But Paul, in Romans 5, uh, he says that the law was given so that transgressions might increase. What? <laughs> you know, if, if God is so bent out of shape every time we do something he told us not to do, why did he engineer human history so that we would do a lot of things he told us not to do? He had a plan. Yeah. What was that plan? Right. And so he says, we're grace. I mean, we're sin increased grace increased all the more, but that increase in grace isn't just to cover over sin. It's to move us away from that whole mechanism. You know, that this disintegration is supposed to come to an end and we're supposed to begin to move toward reintegration under the gospel. So um, death is, is a present reality. If you ever find yourself doing something you regret, if you ever find yourself not doing something you wish you would have, um, these kinds of effects that the New Testament seems would call that death. And that far from being better in Israel, it may have been worse among the Jews because they had this law that was telling them what you should do, and now it's driving them uh, in a a more fractured state. So they have even more that they're trying to do that they're not doing, and now they're struggling. Um, So God has been working with everybody in the world. He wants to bring people to salvation. We just know that it's generally going to be the righteous who are saved. 
I do tend to think that it's those who've come to Christ who are given the opportunity to um, to reign in the new order. I, yeah, I've always wondered, well, who are we ruling over? <laughs> you know, and and I, I'm just realizing I think God's going to salvage a ton of people. I think He's going to bring people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, and they're going to be people who are who were merciful. You know, people who were kind. People who were who cared about truth and 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 they were wise people. That God is going to He's He's really filtering through all humankind. Those who were not, those who were wicked and destructive and harmful, you know, those people are going to just not be a part of it. Um, and that God is going to remake the human enterprise from these others that He's collecting. And that those who belong to Christ, those who've partaken of this, they've suffered with him and they have partaken of the, the gift of the Holy Spirit and they have uh, been conformed to the image of Christ, that these are going to be God's children, his regents, his Christ co-heirs in a renewed creation hmm. where there's no death. Interesting. I've never heard that before, but it's bringing some things together. Uh, you're, and we've touched on a number of things, and it's kind of happening again where you'll mention something, and I'll think, oh, wait, we've got to go down that yeah. rabbit, rabbit trail. <laughs> and one of them is uh, judgment according to works. And this is a big theme in New Testament theology. There's a lot of work being done on uh, how do we make, what do we make of the fact that in the Bible, judgment is according to works. Yeah. Um, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and that doesn't fit with our Protestant theology. Right. And, you're, and you're talking about a way to make it fit. Um, and you're talk. you mentioned something and it makes me want to cite Romans chapter two, verse yeah. six, Romans chapter two, verse six, for he, God will repay according to each one's deeds Yes. to those who by patiently doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. Amen. That's what you're talking about. Right. While for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth, but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. Yeah. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Yeah. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Boom. Yeah. Now that says what you're saying. Mm -hmm. But in Protestant interpretation, typically we say, well, Paul is maybe being hypothetical here, um, or he's setting up this, this sort of this standard that... Um, maybe theoretically exists, but no one can actually fulfill. And therefore, that's why we need Christ to be saved, because there will be, in the end, nobody who sought for glory and honor and immortality. You could even support that from Romans 3, where just literally a few verses later, Paul says, for there is no one who does good, no, not one. Yeah. So you might, you might justify that interpretation. Sure. Maybe you could address that for me. Yeah, well, I, I think there Paul is speaking um, about He's including the Jews in that. And, and I, I think there's certainly the case that everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, uh, and so we could say, well, you know, only those who belong to Christ are going to seek these things. But what about everybody that lived before Christ? What about King David and Abraham and these others uh, who didn't participate in this regeneration or hear the story of Jesus crucified or any of that, um, we'd have to suppose that they had some sort of secret knowledge that they didn't share with us or that God was just saving people through the back channels um, all along. And then what about everybody that's lived before that? I, I, I do think that Paul says that those who seek these things 
uh, mm-hmm. will receive it, not those who achieve those things. Yeah, he doesn't say, uh, right, I think that's a good point. He doesn't say these people are earning their salvation. Right. I don't think he's saying that. I no. think he's saying that there's a reward for seeking. Right. Yeah, and he's just saying, look, God is righteous. If you sought that, that's what he'll give you. If you sought yourself and, and all those others, then he'll give you what you sought, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, if It's like uh, Galatians 6. He says, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. The, the one who sows to the flesh will, from the flesh, reap decay. And those, the one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap immortality. Uh, that there is this just appropriateness to judgment, that what we've pursued in life will be granted us in the resurrection. Uh, Daniel 12 talks about the resurrection, and, and it doesn't say those who believed in Yahweh or you know those who believed in Jesus will uh, be raised to life. It says those who were wise, those who led many to righteousness, those people. Now, does that include somebody like uh, the Buddha? I think it does. I, I think Buddha was wise. I think he led many people to righteous living. He, he called people away from self-indulgence and stuff like that. So does that include Socrates? I think it does. You know, does it include somebody like Mahatma Gandhi? I think so. Um, you know, so they seem to fit the profile of those who will be counted worthy to live in the renewed earth. You know, I, I don't think any of us think that the very best Christian is going to be just pristine at the moment that they die, mm-hmm. that they will have completely conquered all sin in their life. And maybe some have, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm certainly not going to rule that out, but I think we, we certainly don't want to plan on that, uh, that most of us will think we've got some work left to do when we die. Mm-hmm. And, and we're assuming that God is going to make up the difference in the resurrection is he not able to make up the difference in other people too mm-hmm. what is it that they've how have they missed it you know that he can't make up the difference for them well he certainly can and so that's kind of how i see that so, would you include those who maybe heard the gospel but just couldn't grasp it at the time but they still were people who uh, or maybe there were bad there were bad examples of christians and they just couldn't yeah. get their mind around it um yeah. And and yet they were still someone who was seeking the good. Right. I think for some people, the way Christianity has been presented to them, that they would have to violate the principle of righteousness in order to become a Christian. And they just haven't been able to do that. You know, and that's okay. Um, if, if someone sees to become a Christian means to become a bigot. Mm. You know, to become a Christian means to become some sort of a dogmatist or, or whatever. And, and they're just saying that is not the kind of person. That's not what I, this inner self is yearning to be. I, you know, I, I can't go there without killing a part of myself. Then, then that person has kind of chosen righteousness over unrighteousness at that moment, even though unrighteousness was wearing a Christian face. So, you know, what, what's God going to do? It, it is Gandhi lived in a occupied India Surrounded by professing Christians who were racists and oppressors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he said something like, yeah, I would believe in Christ were it not for the Christians I know. Right. So now Jesus comes back and he's like, okay, all of you oppressors, you just happen to check a box. And you were Anglicans or whatever you were and you believed in me. And you, Gandhi, well, you know, you spent your whole life working for justice and mercy, but go to hell, literally. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it just doesn't. That didn't quite jibe, and it's okay. I mean, hey, God's sovereign. He can do that. I, I wouldn't fight him on that. I mean, hey, I'm, I'm excited to see what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. Just because I, <laughs> it'll you know, be interesting. Because I, yeah, I mean, I trust him, and I know that whatever he chooses is going to be the absolute best thing. And, and you know, I'm just going to have to revise a lot of things. But it seems completely and squarely out of sync with everything we think we know about God that He's revealed to us. Now, if God said, "Hey, I'm upside down and backwards," and all that, then that's one thing. But if he seems to be operating in some sort of a sense of, of fair play mm-hmm. and valuing those who really do care for other people and stuff like that, if that is important to him, and it seems to be that it seems that Gandhi will be in when a lot of people who claim to be Christians will be out. Mm-hmm. Um, Abraham said, didn't he? Will not the judge of all the earth yeah. do what is right? Exactly. Yeah. And so... I think that it's okay for us to, to think in those terms. And I, and I think that a lot of people are afraid to say, well, Jesus, they wouldn't say Jesus is not the only way to heaven. But, and I know that's a hard thing to hear for some Christians. Um, but it's, we're afraid to say that because we think it takes the edge off of evangelism. <laughs> you know. Um, but it, I, I think to, to claim to have such... A narrow view that the only people who are going to live forever are those who believe the message, the gospel message as we proclaim it. Um, it it really does kind of lampoon God. It it opens us up to a lot of criticism, um, and a lot of that criticism can be found in the Bible. Um, so it just doesn't. It seems counterproductive for us to say that, and it's unnecessary because what Jesus offers is so amazing that we don't need to scare the hell out of people. Mm-hmm. We just need to tell them the truth. So, Which is that, your point, I think, is that the Jesus is the way to enter into eternal life now, into right. the life of the kingdom of the heavens now. Yes. Right. And, and maybe, our, maybe we have to resort to threats of hell because our, you know, the experience of the gospel that many people have is lackluster. And the goal of the Christian life is not moral compliance. It's not some clean image. It is glory now. So, you know, when Paul says the one that he for the ones that he foreknew, he um, justified and the ones he justified, he sanctified and the ones he sanctified, he glorified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Past tense. He, yeah. Right. Romans eight. Right. And so there is a way of living that we've been invited into that is described as glory. So Paul runs a scenario with Abraham in Romans 4. He says, if Abraham, our forefather, had discovered something according to the flesh, he would have something to boast in, but not with regard to God. No, he's he's not saying that if Abraham had discovered something in the flesh, it would have been no value. He's just saying he would have had something to boast in. It just wouldn't have been with regard to God. So let's say you are somebody that you just care about the human race and you have uh, maybe better than average faculties, human faculties, and you're able to go and, and maybe you start a nonprofit and you raise money and you alleviate the suffering of some people in the world. And, and you look back on your life and you think, you know, I feel really good. Yeah, I did something good. Right, exactly. And, and you feel good about that. And, and I don't think God would take that away from you. I don't think he's saying, yeah, but you didn't, you didn't do it with me. You didn't do it with faith. And, you know, you suck. He wouldn't do that. I, I think what 
what that person missed out on, what this philanthropist missed out on, was this electric encounter with God. Mm-hmm. You know, was, was this touch of the divine, was this moment when you're out there and you've got no money and a house full of orphans and you just say, God, we got nothing. And somebody shows up at the door and they give you a check, you know, for $5,000. Mm-hmm. That moment is worth everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. George Mueller wrote about that. I'm sure you're referring to him alluding to his journal because he sure. had experiences like that over and over again with his orphanage. Depending yeah, so, on God to provide, saw God come through. Sure. And, and, and a, just a merciful person who was an unbeliever could have done a similar thing. They just couldn't have done it with those kind of stories. And so we're invited to that kind of living. And I, I think when we make that the standard of the Christian life, that we're supposed to maybe not be George Mueller, but we are supposed to have regular intersections with just astonishing encounters, you know, of, of God who is there to supply and to help. And, and for Paul, it was just a matter of, of just being forgiven was worth sinning. <laughs> that sounds like a weird thing, but he's just saying, look, you could live a perfect life and live entirely parallel to God. You would never encounter him. It doesn't mean that he'll take that away from you or that he's threatened somehow by your goodness or that he needs you to fail in order to feel good about himself. It's just that if you never needed his forgiveness, you didn't get to have that intersection with him. And, and it's, all, it's better to have sinned and had an intersection with God than it is to have lived a perfect life and never contacted him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he's saying there in Romans 4. He's like, God wanted to give us this amazing encounter with him, with his grace, that there's something very rich to be had, and it's, and it's this life that transcends just good. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, atheists say, well, hey, we can be good, we, that they're good. And I don't doubt that at all. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of good people who are atheists. I, I think a lot of people became atheists because they were good people. Mm-hmm. They were like, I, I mean, I can't buy into the kind of, the, you know, the slavery, the genocide, the stuff like that I see in the Bible, and I'm too good of a person to be a Christian. And they decided they, don't, they can't believe in that God. They were good people, and they became unbelievers because they were good people. Sure. Okay. Yeah, so the argument traditionally is you, you have to have God to be good. Uh, your point is, no, you can be good without God. You just can't, be, can't have a transcendent life right. without God. Right, and in the church and Christianity, we don't see it that way because most Christians don't have that transcendent life. And so we define it as in terms of a, a, a set of moral prohibitions, uh, you know, a base level morality. And we say that's Christianity. Well, it's not surprising that it's not compelling to anyone. You know, nobody's like, so what you're saying is, is you're greedy, but you don't overindulge in alcohol. You know, so you're not only are you greeting, you're also greedy. You're also boring. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, yeah. wow. Yeah. Sign me up. You know, um, and wouldn't we rather be among people who maybe they drink too much on a Friday night, but they're authentic? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're not trying to project an image that's false. Um, wouldn't we rather be around those people? And if we would rather be around them, maybe God would rather be around them. You know, and, and maybe that's a challenge. I'm just saying that, that the Christian call isn't get your ticket punched, be moral, and hopefully go to heaven with just this very few number of people who are Christians. Um, but it is rather be changed and be conformed over time to the glorious image of the Son of God 
with all that entails, all of the power, the access to God in prayer, the suffering. Peace and joy, despite the suffering. Right. And then to reign with Christ as a co-heir, co-regent over the created universe for the duration of the next age. I don't know how long that's going to be. <laughs> you know, I mean, it says that we're going to be with him through the ages. But I think of all of human history as one age. So who knows how many different ages they're going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the next age, at least, until the, this universe flickers out, then then those who belong to Christ are going to be co-regents because they learn to suffer with him. And they learn to believe, to trust in the Father with him. Through the crucible that is a fallen unbelieving, hostile world, that, that we need the fallenness in order to be conformed to his image. Mm-hmm. It's why there's this gap, this delay, you know, this silence for a week or whatever you want to call it. If you're talking about Daniel's 70 weeks, you know, that there's this pause. Mm-hmm. Now that conformed to his image, is that, is that like a, a could, it, could one argue that that's a deeper level of love and therefore of morality? That can only be had by the believer in Christ. Right. Yeah, it, and that I think that level is also glory, and I think that that glory is also grace. That our when we when we say, "Hey, we're not called to live by law; we're called to live by grace," that doesn't just mean we have an eraser in the sky for everything we do, and that we can just you know, go out and cause harm and, and wreak havoc and God's just going to forgive us and, per, you know, not perfect, but forgiven. It is that we are called to live a gracious life. So someone who's living by the law would say, well, what do I have to do? Mm-hmm. What's the minimum? Is it 10%? Okay, here's 10%. Mm-hmm. Someone who's living by grace would say, what's the need? Mm-hmm. I'll give. Mm-hmm. And until the need is gone, I'm here. Because that's grace. That's what grace does. That's, the, that's why there's no tithe in the New Testament. Because we are under a different operating system that is one that picks up the pain and the deficiency of someone else and says, that's mine. I'm going to share that load. That's graciousness. It's Jesus had that grace. Um, I think it's Romans... I think it's four where it talks about that Jesus, or maybe three, it talks about that we receive this grace because of his grace, you know, that, that his, it, oh, that's in Romans five. It says that by, through the grace of one man, many will receive grace. So it's a human grace. You know, we think of grace as being something that is God's sole possession, and it is. I mean, only the supreme being who is not contingent on anybody can truly be gracious because everybody else is, is trading favors. But if God invites us into his family, right, and says, mm-hmm. my resources are your resources, we can now be gracious. We have, nothing, we have no need, that there is no um, secret agenda in the kind works that we do. We're not keeping score because God has said, I'm here, I'm, I'm for you, I will answer your prayers, I will give to you. Um, and so we, we now can live gracious. That's gospel living. Um, and it's why we have to get away from the law and, and legalistic living, because that immediately puts a cap on the good that we do. All that to say, someone who maybe is an unbeliever or whatever, they, they're, they're doing things out of empathy or a sense of fairness. It's innate. That's fine. At some point, they 
kind of hit compassion fatigue. They start to say, well, you know, I can't obviously give away everything I have. But the Christian can give away everything he has because he knows more is coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and so he doesn't congratulate himself or pat himself on the back. He never becomes arrogant. He's like, I just gave away somebody else's stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so he's always able to be generous in a way that's shocking. And he never feels that anybody owes him anything because he was just simply giving away what belonged to somebody else anyway. So there's this this call to a gracious life that is glorious. So we think about glory as something that just catches our eye, something that is it has a glint to it. It's something that stands out from the background. That's the life that should be normal for the Christian. So when Paul says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, mm-hmm. that should be the default. The glory of God is what we were made to be. Um, and that is something that it shines out of the background. And so Paul, our Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, don't invite your friends. Everybody does that. Invite your enemies, you know, invite the poor and the lame and those who can't pay you back. He gives these pictures of what a glorious life is. And a glorious life isn't one that's just trading favors. It's one that lives with a manifest awareness that God is, is for me, that he is with me, that he is my father and I'm a co-heir with Christ. And all of that begins to, it ought to reflect a totally different way of living. Mm. That's glory. Mm-hmm. And so we're given this opportunity to live a life that is so much more exciting, that rises from just the grind and the mundane, you know, that the slave can be a prince and all can be fair and righteous here. All can point to God and his kindness, his goodness, his perfect will. We can participate in this plan that is transcendent and eternal that sounds like good news. I don't think we have to resort to believe like I do or go to hell in order to happily proclaim that kind of good news. You have the opportunity. You have the opportunity to enter into this transcendent life and, um, and to become, to fulfill your original calling to be an image bearer. So I think this ties in this glory that you're talking about Mm -hmm. ties in with being made in the image of God and our calling to bear the image of God. Right. That's what's being restored in Christ. And, if we've fallen short of the glory of God, but now we're being redeemed, that would mean as image bearers, we're, we're, we're sharing, we're displaying God's glory and we're Mm -hmm. sharing in the glory of God. Exactly. Exactly. And so that, you know, Paul talks about that we with unveiled face behold as in a mirror, the glory of God. Mm -hmm. What do you see in a mirror? See yourself. Right. That that's, that's what we ought to see. In the scripture, as we see Christ in the scripture, we should see ourselves. We should see that we are being transformed into that image from one degree of glory to another, from glory to glory, that this becomes this drive that pushes us ever upward. Um, I, I grieve over Christians who live this kind of life of vacillation between doing well and doing poorly. Um, we have ups and downs and highs and lows in our mood, maybe, but in our devotion to God, in our service to Him, that we ought to be able to be constant uh, and to be in a mode of progress because it's Him operating through us. It's predicated on His unchanging grace and His power. And so, if you want to know whether you are a legalist, well, look at the rhythm of your life. 
that the law does give power to sin, and we find ourselves in a fight with it, um, and we are in this kind of losing battle as we continue to lose ground and then gain ground, and that is the pattern of the flesh, but that there is a pattern that goes from one degree of glory to another as a person continues to fix their eyes on Christ um, and find that he is moving us ever forward. Um, and so it's just a totally different existence way of life that he calls us into. It's something worth living. And I think, I mean, hey, if if you could, if your story could be, instead of being go to work, pay your bills, get married, have a couple of kids, try not to do anything terrible, you know, do a couple of good things along the way and die without too many regrets. That's story one, right? <laughs> story two, uh, be invited into the grand narrative of this creation. Live in a partnership and a companionship with Almighty God and lead who knows how many people to eternal victory and joy. So those are your choices, <laughs> you know, which, which kind of life do you want to live? Um, seems like plenty of good news for, for me, you know. Um, and then the eternal, enter, eternal part is like, I think that's something it's going to work out, but we can live with the confidence that where we're going to end up in that final day because of Christ. Mm -hmm. So now in all of the, now, you know, so we're, we're circling back around to our original topic, yeah. which is judgment. And, um, you know, it's, it, I don't think you're really advocating for a view in which most people are going to pass the judgment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the gospel you preach is the one Paul, you know, uh, gave us in Romans. And when he begins his letter to Romans, he describes human history as a really bad, uh, yeah set of results sure uh, the gentiles and the jews have both failed and are under the power of sin mm -hmm. and we and the gospel rescues us out of this corrupt society yeah uh and so there is this future judgment that and and i noticed i noticed as i kind of also subscribe to the view in romans one that the wrath of god is his handing us over and our becoming ever more corrupt mm -hmm. and yet as you read on there are references to the future coming yes. wrath. so right. you can't just you can't just subscribe to that Right. First view of wrath mm -hmm. as like a way of excusing yourself from believing that there's a future judgment. Right. And I think a lot of people are doing that these days. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm asking this question is people sure. are looking for a judgment they can believe in. Yeah. <laughs> a, yeah. a wrath they can believe in. Right. And, uh, and we, one of the ways we try to do that is we say, well, the wrath is just, um, just the, the wrath of God is just the mess we're making of our lives here. And that's bad enough. Right. But in reality, in Paul's thinking, the same Paul who gave us the gospel, he's talking about a future wrath, a future sure. judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if there's going to be a future redemption, there must be a future judgment um, because God is not coercive. Uh, and so those who have chosen against him, you know, I, I think no matter where you come from, that there's always this kind of defining moment in people's lives uh, where they just decided, you know, it's dog eat dog and I'm not going to be eaten. And, and so people begin to live for themselves and, and in ways that are dangerous and, and harmful to other humans. And those people just don't have a place. They're not going to have a place in a redeemed creation. God's not going to... They don't want you know, God, so they won't right, have God. Right. Which is one is, way I think about it. Right. Which is why Paul says the ones who sought those, the ones who longed for that. You know, Jesus says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. 
uh, those who really wanted that in life, they will. And they will probably be the minority, I'm sorry to say, because of these corrupting influences in the world. But that's what the gospel's for. It's to push back against that. But yeah, what's interesting is, is that the, the final judgment comes in the section that's addressed to the religious Jews. <laughs> you know, he's saying, hey, this wrath is coming on the world and it's manifest out there among the pagans. And the Jews were, I think, insulated from a lot of just the debauchery and the, just the betrayal and the ugliness that was out there in the Gentile world. And I think the Jews were looking over and going, oh, man, you know, I'm glad I wasn't born a Gentile. And yet Paul says that, hey, you Jews, if you look over there and say, I'm glad I wasn't born a Gentile, you're committing the same kind of a sin in that you really see yourself as a judge. And so there's an ungodliness to you when you see yourself as the judge, just as the Gentiles were ungodly in that they, they felt the right to produce gods that, you know, and images and things like that. So the Jews are creating a version of God who really sides with ethnically Jewish people and is going to destroy everybody else. And so he's saying, you're committing the same sins. And, and he says that now you're not suffering the temporal consequences of sin like the Gentiles, but you are building up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, mm -hmm. that you are taking God's kindness that should be leading you to repentance, and you are using it to store up more wrath. So there has to be this day coming because, you know what, the, the consequences of temporal consequences of sin don't hit everybody the same way all the time. You know, some people, they just sin and they get away with it. Yep. Everything's amazing that there has to be the settling of things mm -hmm. at the end of time for God to be fair, um, and that there also has to be kind of a cleansing that takes place if there's going to be a renewed creation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this this is a good argument, I think. I don't think every—I think people want to believe that in, a, in what they conceive of as a loving God instead of a just God, and um, that they don't really want— God to judge anyone in the end. Um, they want God to forgive everyone in the end. Mm -hmm. And uh, at least this is, I think, a view that's out there and it's being promoted. Um, yeah. And I think there's pressure on us to, yeah. to, to embrace this. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yet I don't think it's very, I don't think people have really thought it through because we're not worshiping a God worthy of worship if, we're, if, we're, if this is not a God of justice. Right. What is your response to that? Well, and I, I would say, yeah, definitely, and that we are, you know, th there is just a lot of, of injustice that's happened. Um, you know, this first murder, okay, Cain and Abel, that there really hadn't been a prohibition against murder at that point. And so Cain is not called upon to pay the penalty for murderers. You know, the, the earth became full of violence in the day of Noah, and we don't really see that there was a legal system, there's no capital punishment, there's, there's no prohibition against killing other people until Noah comes off the ark. And then you see this first prohibition that is against, you know, by it, when someone sheds human blood, by humans will their blood be shed because humans were made in the image of God. So, in, you know, in Genesis 9, we get this prohibition against murder, but before that, there was no law against murder at least in the biblical narrative, okay? So Cain is not, you know, God doesn't say, how could you have killed your brother? Don't you remember, you know, this the fifth commandment, and, you know, and, and you shouldn't commit murder and all this. And, and 
Cain didn't have that. And so Cain didn't pay, pay the price for murder. He didn't have to pay for it with his life. He, you know, but there was a consequence to it. God says, your brother's blood is calling to me from the ground. That there's this blood of the innocence that, that is a spiritual pollution. That there is a, something within our environment that it calls out for those scores to be settled in some way. And so, uh, that yeah, that God has to be the arbiter because he's the only one outside of the courtroom. He's not a plaintiff or a defendant in this, you know. I mean, he, he is a plaintiff in that he himself has been um, treated unfairly when people fail to worship him. But he's outside of our squabbles with one another. And so, you know, there are certainly people who've lived their life taking advantage of others, preying upon the weak and all of that. Are those people going to receive the same um, destiny as those who sought good and tried to elevate other people and stuff like that? It doesn't seem, it, it seems that while people are trying to defend God's honor by saying, well, he's, he's not going to judge people, um, they, they're not quite getting the notion that there are really, really bad people out there who've done really, really horrible things that need to be accounted for. And so I, you know, that, that doesn't seem like a loving God to me, someone who would ignore what this, this cry for justice, for satisfaction. So that, uh, that's important, I, I think, as a part of judgment. But also this notion that people have withheld from God the worship that he's due, that they're out of sync with the created order. You know, They just don't have a, a place in creation that the ancient sin, you will be as God. So there's this aspiration to take God's job, but if there is a God, he's created everything, he's just one spot to be filled there. And this aspiration to Godhood is a violation of the very nature of existence. Mm -hmm. And so when people are out of phase with that, out of sync, they don't belong in existence. Uh, you know, that there's just, they have violated the very terms of, Mm -hmm. of existence mm -hmm. so so it's a view of uh eternal judgment in which um the wicked to use the biblical concept go out of existence yes there's no place for them in god's future world right and and to paul's point you know he says the people who seek this will get it the people who seek that will get it if you seek glory and honor and immortality you'll get it if you're self-seeking and all of this then you then this world's all you got well, that's the same. Uh, well, like, say someone's an atheist and, and they rejected God and all that, and they're just living for themselves and everything. And, you know, they've, they've reconciled themselves with that destiny. Mm -hmm. It's they not were. like mm -hmm. they're God's, you know, depriving them of something that they felt that they were worthy of. Right. So it seems fair to me mm -hmm. if God were to reward a chosen unbelief, somebody who's just like, I don't want God in my universe— Right. Um, with annihilation. Mm -hmm. That just seems like a fair response. Mm -hmm. And I think the only person who wouldn't see it as fair is the person who's being annihilated. <laughs> and we're not very good judges of, of things that regard us. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And so, yeah, I think there's definitely going to be a, a judgment. And I just, we have to be honest with our own scriptures, I think, to be credible. Uh, a lot of, 
a lot of this tendency to go all universalistic and everything is a tendency to, it's like a PR campaign for God. Maybe people don't notice that, <laughs> but it seems like what, what, and I'm happy to be corrected by somebody who would take a more universalistic approach to things. So I know that there are people out there who mean well, who would say, well, no, and, and eventually God's going to redeem everybody, everything, even Satan, you know, mm-hmm. is going to be redeemed. Um, and, and okay, you believe that, and you may have a scripture here and there, um, but the overarching tenor, the, the message of scripture seems to speak to this idea of justice, of, of things being paid for. Um, so it, it seems to me that it's more about a PR campaign than it is about pursuing the truth. And it's destined to backfire. Not only is it not based on a full reading of Scripture. I mean, you know, you, you have to go and say, well, you know, all of these books, these massive sections of the Bible are, are outmoded and should be ignored. And you just can't do that, man. That's not fair. You might as well be a Muslim. You know, Islam's like, okay, well, let's update this and all of that suspect. Well, you can't do that. You can't build on top of a foundation that you have chosen to obliterate. Uh, it's just, it's completely dishonest. And so if you say, well, the Old Testament, all that blood, that wasn't God. What's God is, is Jesus, and he's all friendly and nice, and he accepts the sinners. Man, Jesus believed in that God. <laughs> he believed in the God of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Jesus yeah. came out of that narrative. Yeah, he cited those stories, and he talked about hell and judgment. Right, right, yeah. So it, you you can't talk about this this nice, loving Jesus who is the real, real expression of God. That other isn't him. You know, it's like the cross is a very violent act. Redemption is a very violent act. Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else in the New Testament. Yeah, and the cross itself is, in part, about justice. It is. And uh, you end up having to redo your uh, the meaning of the cross, and you have to just basically— I think you just end up with moral influence theory. Like, right. you know, he just died to, sh- um, to show us love and to give us an example of love. Um, I'm not sure even how to explain that without justice being part of the equation. Sure. Um, but so let's talk about that. Let's talk about, let's focus in on the cross as a, an apologetic for the justice of God. Sure. Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah. Justice of God, the holiness of God, I, maybe they're the same in the, in terms of this, this eternal calculus. Um, you know, what, what is the essence of sin? If that litany of moral aberrations in Romans 1, 18 through 32 is the wrath of God, what is sin? You know, because those things we would say, well, those are sins, right? Yes, but they seem to almost, they seem to be consequences of uh, a principal sin. And the principal sin seems to be this ungodliness. Mm-hmm. And so God is aggrieved in that people have defrauded him of his glory. That he has an essential glory that belongs to him and humankind has attempted to rob him of it, has attempted to um, take over and usurp him. So God is aggrieved in that way. Um, and, and that needs to be accounted for. But it is, it is an assault on his holiness on the idea that he is unique in the universe, he is transcendent, that that every, you know, every attempt at humankind to somehow supplant him or to do his job or to banish him from his creation 
is an assault on his uniqueness, his distinction. And so having done that, there's no way to live in a universe that is set to right if we can't appreciate the very fountainhead of the universe, the very essence, the very nature of it. We can't live in a universe that's set to right. Um, God, God's holiness has to be affirmed so that creation can then be in a right relationship with him. So you know, if we say, well, love is all, it's all about relationship and everything, that's great. But, you know, if you don't know the very nature of the one with whom you're in relationship, you don't know what their very essence is, how can you be in relationship with them? And the very essence of God is holy, you know, um, how could we possibly be in relationship if we don't know the very nature of the one with whom, you know, we are interacting. So that's why the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, not the love of God. We have to know first what God is, then we can know who God is. If we try to know who God is before we know what God is, we will make the mistake of counting him as another human being. Okay, so let's just back up or slow down a little bit. We have to know what God is before we can know who he is, meaning we have to know that he is a divine, the divine being, right. the holy one. There's no one like him. Right. Um, he's outside. Uh, he's other than us. Mm-hmm. And he's transcendent. Mm-hmm. And we have, to know th- we have to know and respect that right. before we can, we have to know what he is mm-hmm. before we can know who he is. Right. Doesn't mean we can wrap our minds around his essence. We just have to know that he is fundamentally, qualitatively beyond us, infinitely, mm-hmm. meaning he's holy. So with, without that knowledge, then there's no knowledge of God. So when people say, well, it's about relationship, it's about love and all this, but then they immediately default to comparing God to humans and saying, well, you know, you wouldn't kill your child because they disappointed you or something. And it's just like, yeah, but I'm, I'm not God. So why, why are we talking about this? You know, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, but I don't have the right to. So in the holiness of God, you get the story of God testing Abraham, right? We really had to go to kind of the Abraham story to get the no- notion of what God is, what he's doing. If we really don't, if we don't have that, then we're probably going to start being off base and everything else. We really have to take the whole Abraham cycle um, into account. And at the end of that cycle is this troubling story about God saying, take your son, sacrifice him to me. And, uh, you know, man, that's just, it's difficult to conceive of. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we're told sometime later, God tested Abraham and, and the story tests us. What are we going to do with the story of a God who says, take your son, your only son, your Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him on a mountain that I'll show you. What do we do with that God? If we don't have room for that God in our theology, then we, we aren't Abrahamic theists. Mm-hmm. We, Abraham had room for that God. He had to. He had to. And everyone who's ever worshipped that God has had room for that God. And we think, well, Abraham, he's a primitive person, yeah. and that's why he had room for that God. We're no. moderns, and we can't accept that anymore right yeah god doesn't update um certainly society updates his prescriptions to society to society can be contextual but these stories about god's direct interaction with another person these don't update either god is 
a God who would call somebody to kill their kid or he's not. And so we have to wrestle with that. But that demand is critically important to our view of who and what God is. Um, that story, it requires the cross. The cross is something that is completely unnecessary unless God is holy. And, and it, 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 to me, it, it really is a slander against God if we say, well, God made Jesus die on the cross, but that was really unnecessary you know, he could have done it some other way. Wow, that's it's really warped to think that there's that such extreme measures were just sentimental. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, so that to me that it seems more of a of a mischaracterization of God and an indictment on God if we don't have a place for this propitiation for the satisfaction that comes uh, to God on the basis of that sacrifice. If there's nothing real that took place there in the divine realm, then it's just a drama. It's unfolding. And it seems kind of sick to put Jesus through that for for that sake. So, um, yeah. And when Paul's reflecting on that in Romans 3, he says that God put Christ forward in this way on the cross to demonstrate his righteousness. Right. So that he could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Right. Paul seems to be saying that the cross is about the justice of God and not just mm-hmm. the love of God. In fact, in that section, there's nothing, there's no, there's no, in that section of Romans, there's no mention of the love of God. Right. It's later in Romans 5. Right. Yeah, so God is both loving and he's just, and, and I think we, we talked about that before. I don't know why. I guess it's just falling out of vogue because it's there's this more modern, enlightened sense of morality. But, you know, I, I have these conversations with atheists on Facebook, and, you know, they, uh, they recognize that. They're not, they're not missing the fact that there are Christians out there whose morality just happens to conform to progressive liberalism and that they go back and they just amend what they say the Bible says to fit. Atheists see that. That's a critique they're making of Christianity. If we if we are not consistent with our own belief, we just saw off the limb we're standing on. And we we give the critic really effective ammunition if we begin to I mean, where does our where does our morality come from? if it just happens to coincide with the spirit of the age. And if we find something in our, in our holy book that's a heads-up conflict with the spirit of the age, we just amend it, man. We just cut it out and we redact it. Is that, is that fair? Does that make us a kind of people that are worth following or paying attention to? It really discredits the gospel when our sense of right and wrong begins to just so conveniently conform to the progressive liberalism, whatever you want to call it, you know, the sense of the value of every human being and all of that as being this individualism and stuff, which ironically really comes from the Christian system, you know, originally. So, um, yeah, 
we we have to be consistent with our own position or we just don't have a place to stand and people don't realize that they don't realize they're giving away christianity in the midst of their pr attempts mm-hmm. so yeah okay we're going to change gears okay i don't know if this is a if this is going to be like a clean break or if this is a continuation in some way but this em- emphasis that we have in our podcast in your in your teaching mm-hmm. about how the gospel is our standard by which we live not traditional morality yeah yet in the new testament i'm thinking specifically in paul's letters in various places um there are appeals to uh the christians the the believers that they would uh, adhere to what looks like traditional morality right and um how do we reconcile those two things you seem to be arguing that really all there is for us all all that we are obligated to do Mm -hmm. is um is obey the gospel uh and not obey anything uh not obey traditional morality. Right. How do you reconcile the two? How do you reconcile that Paul, who gave us the gospel and told us to obey the gospel and told us to talk in various places and in various ways about how the gospel is our rule and our authority, he also also enjoined people to uh, adhere to something that looked like, that would look like traditional sexual ethics and so on and so forth. Sure, sure. Um, Well, I'm... I don't know if I would say that we're not supposed to adhere to traditional morality, except that traditional morality is always in flux, you know. So let, let's take um, coarse language, you know. Well, that's defined by culture and changes with time. Things that were taboo in one time period are now commonplace in others. So there's not some sort of a eternal edict about morality doesn't mean we don't need to be aware of what our society considers moral because part of the gospel is that we are this uh, holy nation. And so as his people, we certainly should take into account that which our society considers good as a matter of course of obeying him. Now, we don't do it to pander or, you know, to gain favor with them. Um, we don't just bow it to everything that would this society would say was moral. But we have to be aware of it if we're going to be a holy nation, if we're a city set on a hill. So for me, obeying the gospel would take into account morality as defined by the surrounding society. So let's say we've been talking about human authority and how we're free from that. So let's say someone in an honor-shame culture becomes a Christian and... Um, their parents have been very authoritative, authoritarian over them, even though they're an adult, because that's the society. Now, should that person then kick his parents to the curb saying, I'm not under human authority, you know, uh, would that be the right way to obey the gospel? Absolutely not. That the, that the right way to obey the gospel would be to go the second mile for these parents now if the parents say well you can't be a christian well obviously he's getting this person's going to have to disobey 
authority in that regard. He wasn't ever really under authority, human authority, once he became a follower of Christ. But as a follower of Christ, remember the goal isn't goodness, it's glory. And so we, we are responsible now to become the most sterling example of a helpful adult child, a compliant adult child we can be. So let's say this person, before they became a follower, they would do what their parents wanted, but only the bare minimum, and only after a lot of pressure and cajoling. Well, that's, that's, the, acts of, that's the way somebody behaves if they are under compulsion. But let's say now this person has been set free, and he's taken to heart that everything he does, he does in the name of the Lord, and that the Lord is associated with his actions, and that the best thing he can do is offer to the Lord his love through his parents. And now he begins to offer them even more support, even more affirmation and assistance that he anticipates what they might even ask for before they ask for it. Now he's living truly free. He's living in response to the gospel, and he is transcending the cultural right and wrong norms. I think that's the kind of thing that Paul was calling people to. It's the kind of thing that Jesus was calling people to. When he says, don't resist an evil person, if someone compels you to go with them one mile, go with them two. So that we we declare our liberty not through resistance, but through transcendence. In that second mile, we take that first one back. Someone has forced us to go with them one mile, but they, they didn't force us to go the second. Mm-hmm. And in taking that second mile, we had to go the first to get to the second, and so the first mile becomes ours as well. And that, that's obedience to the gospel in the context of, of a society that has moral norms. In addition to that, uh, the morality that comes from resurrection power is necessarily uh, one of self-control. So the the notion of of excess, of addiction, um, of of unchecked lust, libertinism, that there's this woven into the gospel ethic is this desire and willingness to crucify the flesh. Mm-hmm. And that's really what most of Paul's moral sections are. That he's saying, put to death these outbursts of wrath and this intemperance and this sensuality, that that's just a normal outgrowth of the cross. Not a list of do's and don'ts, but simply how do I apply the cross in my circumstance? It's certainly not through indulgence of my physical desires in, you know, in ways that are undoubtedly going to hurt other people that are going to enslave me that are going to waste my income and my reputation that 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 is a perfect depiction of somebody who is enslaved and i'm free right Mm -hmm. and so this notion of freedom becomes not just a privilege it's a responsibility Mm -hmm. that i i don't just get to be free i have to be free but someone who is free is somebody who is not swept up in this this drift of their desires they're not caught up in materialism they're not addicted to any substances they're not compulsive in any behaviors that they are free now a person like that in almost every society around the world is going to be um, exemplary mm-hmm. and almost 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 any morality if you can think of any moral system anything that undergirds society that if somebody is living with frugality 
they're living with self-control, that they are moderate in their behavior and in their decision making, that all of that this person is somebody that is worth noting. Mm-hmm. They're a credible human being in every society that I can think of. And so, yes, uh, we have to account, I think, for morality, but not because it's traditional and not because it's moral. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> you know? and yet, there are things about there are things about traditional morality, or at least some some parts of traditional morality, that are inherent to are uh, inherent to how God made us. Right. I would say I would say that morality, in and of itself, is a construct. Uh, morality. What is morality concern? Right and wrong. Anything that is not at the essence of existence is a construct, okay? Mm-hmm. And so let's go back. Let's rewind um, everything. Now we round it okay. all the way back to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternity mm-hmm. past. Mm-hmm. Was there morality? Hmm. So there was love. Right. But was there morality? And I think there was faith. Mm. You have to have Faith in order to have love. Faith in, in terms of just a abject trust in the other. Hmm. Yeah, that's all. Morality is just what comes in when evil has polluted that purity of faith and love. Mm-hmm. Because and morality it, exists when there's a contrast between good and when there's, when there's evil. Yes. When there's good versus evil. Evil has to exist for there to be morality. Morality is this, like, you know, historical project to be good instead of evil. Right. That gets just, you know, that's not the ultimate. That's the penultimate. That's just as old as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know. And and so the knowledge of good and evil is a lot of people see Christianity as being about morality, about ethics, about the knowledge of good and evil. But what was the result of the pursuit of the knowledge of good and evil? Was that the thing we were supposed to aspire to? Knowing good and evil? Yeah. Yeah, now we know it, and where, where did that get us? Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are two trees, not, you know, not the tree of good and the tree of evil, not the tree of life and the tree of death, but the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. Life, eternal life, good and evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that those are not... So on the one hand is this called a transcendence, glory, faith, and on the other hand is this, uh, you know, traditional morality, ethics, right? All of our, all of our virtue, all of our efforts, right, to attain mm-hmm. to virtue. Some of which are even laudable and um, moderately successful, sure. so that you could actually become a relatively good person. Yeah. But again, to your point earlier, not a transcendent person. Sure, and. And that relatively good person, I think God's going to bring back. Mm-hmm. I mean, God loves humankind. He created us. He doesn't want to throw us away. You know, there are passages in Scripture that say, like in Job, I think it's 14, where he says, you'll long for the creation that your hand has made. That, that, that resurrection, the hope of resurrection, is a belief in a faithful creator mm-hmm. who didn't just create us to have us disappear, but really wants to retain us. And so, let, you know, I think we have to have a pretty broad notion, man. I, maybe God's going to surprise us with who makes it, <laughs> you know. Um, and he can handle that. Mm-hmm. He can deal with it. It's not my problem. But we're called to something 
beyond that. We're called to, to a fellowship with him that, that is in eternity past. And so Paul says in Christ Jesus, in, in Galatians 5, 6, he says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. All that counts is faith working through love. I don't care what you put there in place of circumcision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It fits. If, if the goal is faith working through love, we will be participants in the divine life. And that life is essentially eternal. Okay, so in today's uh, context, that I would put it this way. Let's chew on this. Um, neither traditional morality nor progressive morality means anything. Right. All that counts is faith working through love. I, I agree wholeheartedly, yeah, um, that there are no activities that have particular value. But what matters is that we are becoming like the divine essence mm-hmm. and that that is faith and love. And so when Paul says in the gospel is revealed the righteousness of God, it is the righteousness by which God is righteous. And that righteousness is faith and love. Mm-hmm. If a person lives by that, Augustine said, if a person loves God, let him do as he please, you know, um, that there's this idea that really, if we, if we love God, we will mm-hmm. do what's right, uh, by the world standards. Yeah. We don't really trust that. I mean, I can feel that in myself that mm-hmm. I don't really believe that. Like, I don't really want to go there and say that the only standard is faith working through love because that could leave open the door to something that I don't approve of, or that I think God doesn't approve of. And, uh, then I've been, I don't know what, become a heretic or I've endorsed evil mm-hmm. or something. And your point is that, what is your point? I don't <laughs> want to put words in your mouth, but sure. you finished that thought. Well, my point is that we really can't love so long as we're keeping accounts. Um, that, that as long as that is right and wrong is, is in our primary you know, place of concern, then we begin to protest. Well, they can't do that. That's wrong. And, and we begin to play the victim and all of this instead of just in, entrusting ourselves to God and saying, you know, and, and letting go of this expectation that right would be done and wrong would be conquered, that we just trust him and love, mm-hmm. um, that the, there really are two economies and only one can, can be in operation at a particular time we can either be people who are operating on the principle of grace that's just this love this faith is going beyond um a sense of what someone's owed or whatever or we can operate in traffic in trying to keep accounts and these these notions of right and wrong that are constructs that are in flux that change from culture to culture um and and are really penultimate they just aren't the essential thing Uh, talk to people like in their marriage and they they protested you know my wife she can't do this it's not right and i'm like who cares (laughs) you know who cares if it's right that's not your problem you know your problem is do do you love her are you going to love her um and so i i think that if we are choosing this kind of gracious living we will be these glorious people will become something better than what human morality would call us to. And human morality, or just morality, let's just call it morality. So moralism 
always becomes self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is what Paul said in Romans 2 was going to bring the wrath of God on the Jews. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do you become righteous with be, without becoming self-righteous? Because you dare not become self-righteous. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're threatened by most of the time, what's threatened is our self-righteousness more than our righteousness. And that's a scary thought. I don't want to be that person. Uh, we're threatened. We are threatened more by our self-righteousness than by our righteousness. Can you mm-hmm. clarify what you mean? Sure. So when I say, well, I, I don't want to just say the only thing that counts is faith working through love, because that might mean that somebody would do something that is immoral and justify it in some way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But what I think is resident in, in the hearts of a lot of people is that, that there is a comfort in having real clarity about a prescribed right and wrong, and it allows us to stay on the, the right side of it, and that gives us a comfort. Um, we don't like the uncertainty of setting other people free. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but as, so long as we say, well, the good people are the ones who do X, Y, and Z, then we're always going to compare ourselves to others. Mm-hmm. And, and in the New Testament church, that there seems to be this insistence that people who have very different moral configurations be together in one group. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we get to like Romans 14 and Paul says, hey, some of you eat meats sacrificed to idols and some of you eat only vegetables. And, and we think, well, that's a tertiary issue. That's not important. And who cares? Man, they cared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not fair to them to say that wasn't that doesn't matter, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but and yet Paul had room for people to even get it wrong, mm-hmm. you know, to 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 do things that that maybe were completely off base. And still be in mm-hmm. because he was sure that God was working in them and that the gospel was continuing to bear fruit, that the Holy Spirit was actually alive in them and that they would come into that conviction. And so I can't say to you, hey, you know, what you're doing is wrong and it's wrong in every setting, in every circumstance. And um, you can't be here if you continue doing this X, you know. So let's go back to prohibition. If you drink alcohol, you're wrong. You're out of this church. Okay, there was a time when that was just, there wasn't black and white. I mean, there wasn't any gray area. That was black and white. You drink alcohol, you're out, right? And now we realize that's not, that's stupid. You know, I mean, it's just a substance. There's nothing wrong with any substance. It's just the results of it, right? And so whatever else we might put in that, in that spot. So gambling or whatever behavior somebody goes into um, that we say, well, let, let's just take LGBTQ. Let's just go there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, I, for years, we've said, hey, you, you guys can't do that. And you know what? I, I think that the Bible unequivocally condemns that behavior. Right. Yeah, right. The, same, the problem for me, and let's just like make it as, or, as big a problem as we can, the same Paul who gave us the gospel mm-hmm. that we say we are to obey right. is the one who clearly in his explanation of the gospel uh, right. mentions among many other things, it mentions homosexuality sure. as part of the problem sure. that we need to be rescued from. Right. And, you know, my contention all along is that we can trust Paul when he proclaims the gospel. He's more suspect the farther he gets from the gospel. Mm-hmm. So his application of the gospel is generally faithful. Mm-hmm. 
his application of the Bible, not as much, <laughs> you know, at least to, to actual directives. Um, so we really have to be, we have to be true to his core message and that's what he would have wanted us to do. Mm-hmm. And so we, we talked about the issue of women, right? And, and we know that the, the closer to the core is that there is, there is no male or female, right? There is no slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, all are one in Christ. That that's closer to the core of the gospel message than the instructions about women being quiet in the church. Mm-hmm. We get that? And so if we have to choose, and they are incompatible, you can't say, oh, they're of equal value. They just need to be quiet. That's tough. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's a hard sell. Um, so you, ha- you have to pick. And, and I think that, uh, and so as we get closer and closer to the core of Paul's when Paul says nothing matters but faith working through love, that seems like pretty near the core application. Mm-hmm. As we get farther out to specific behaviors, we're getting more into Paul's own personality, his context, what everybody knew to be wrong. Paul isn't, he's not making homosexuality wrong in what he's saying. Mm-hmm. He is assuming everybody agrees that it's wrong. Right. You know? Or, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, at a minimum, that that his readers with their... Jewish background, or at least Jewish informed background, right. would agree that it's wrong. Sure, and you know, I, I would argue, hey, nature seems to suggest that this isn't the way to behave. You know, that it's not how God you have, made us. You have a you have a peg and you have a socket. You know, I mean, th- there are things that just don't. It doesn't make sense to do that. Um, so I, although I, it makes I would, sense to some people, right, right, and I would argue, but at the same time, the core of the gospel is faith working through love. So, as as society continues to change and, and we have to account for society we do, um, we have to at least have room th- for the possibility that there's somebody who's totally in love with Jesus, who is able to be in a same sex relationship and all good conscience. And at the very minimum, we just, we love them and we accept them. And if they require that we celebrate what they're doing, I can't. Mm-hmm. I won't, I won't officiate a same-sex wedding. You know, I'm not going to teach officially that God likes that or he endorses that way of life. At the same time, if somebody comes, because, you know, we, we have enough evidence now that, that people seem to be bent in that way under some circumstances and that they, you know, they, they do that and that they may have no conscientious problem with it at all, especially as it becomes normalized in our society. And so someone says, you know, I am just in love with Jesus and I love my same sex spouse and we are faithful to one another and we want to do ministry and and all of that. I'm not going to say, well, you you fall outside the lines of these prescriptions. I'm going to say, I'm going to believe what you said. Mm -hmm. You love God and you're doing what you're doing in all good conscience. And you are operating under faith, working through love. And call, and, them all I can do. and call them to that standard. Yes. But not to traditional morality. No, no, because there is, I mean, what is traditional morality? Again, you know, it's just based on where you are, and morality is penultimate. I mean, there's a case to be made that if in the resurrection there will be no male or female, then it all, and none of it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other side of it, I can argue both sides. Uh, on the other side, marriage is a picture of Christ in the church that there needs to be unity and diversity for this oneness to take place. 
Mm-hmm. And so my doctrine on marriage is it's got to be hetero in order to to fulfill that picture. Mm-hmm. There must be a heterogeneity to it because it is a call, a gospel call for all that is different to come together into one. That Galatians three twenty eight, you know, there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, is this coming together into one. Mm-hmm. And and the the farther apart you are in your categories, the more of a miracle it is that you're coming into one. So that that a man and a woman can come into one, can become one, is a great miracle. You know, it is. Um, just a, a powerful thing. Uh, I don't see the equivalent in a same-sex couple. So if someone were to ask me, what do you think marriage is? I'm going to have to say it's between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Do I, you know. Because you don't get a new definition of marriage out of the gospel. I mean, no. marriage, is, marriage is something that goes back to the beginning, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Right. And you can't escape that. No. It's an, art, it's an, it's a, it's an artifact of history mm-hmm. and of and of the creation story. Right. And we don't get a new definition of it in the gospel. Right. We haven't been given one. Mm-hmm. But if somebody is, say they come to us, let's say they're transgender, and they've already been through the transition surgery, and they're married to somebody of the opposite sex, I guess, or whatever. And, um, you know, do we say, well, you guys are going to get divorced before we baptize you? Right. You know, uh, that doesn't seem to square to jibe with this idea of the gospel as being this transcendent truth. But if we call people to faith working through love, if we believe that there is a Holy Spirit, then it would stand to reason that God is going to shape every person who comes in the way that he wants them to be. And we can give him room to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of like we can trust, we were talking earlier about how we can trust God with the judgment. We can leave Mm -hmm. that in his hands. Yeah. We can trust God with morality too. It's like, you know, if, if God cares about men and women being straight, then he can see to it that they, uh, are straight or that they get the, whatever healing they need or that, um, you know, he, he can compensate for that. Sure. We don't yeah. have to be micromanaging it, managing people. Right. Right. I think most of us, let's take, for instance, most of us would agree that polygamy is wrong. Uh, most evangelical, American evangelicals today. But let's say you go and you evangelize a village and the, the chief has six wives. Mm-hmm. And they all have children, right? His children through all of them. Mm-hmm. So they're an extended family. Does the gospel require him to divorce all but one? Well, wouldn't that cause hardship on the five? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that cause agony in, in terms of just choosing them and then abandoning those children, casting them aside? Mm-hmm. See how care, for, not care right. for others seems to um, uh, trump the uh, traditional morality at that point. Right, and tr- again, traditional traditional morality for him would be polygamy. Mm-hmm. Biblical, <laughs> you know? biblical morality. Biblical, like biblical morality, marriage. yes, sure. Biblical marriage, and that's what we prefer, but that's not the ultimate. That's not at the core. The core is how the individual responds to the gospel, and are they living in faith? And is that faith now facilitating love? Yeah. And are they obeying that call? Seems like you're, seems like what you're articulating is that there's a there's a there's there's room for us to acknowledge that there is biblical sexual ethics, mm-hmm. and yet the gospel calls us 
to something even higher than biblical sexual ethics. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't deny them or upend them or reverse them, Mm-mm. but it transcends them into something sure. that is that is higher than right. biblical sexual ethics. Right. I mean, you think in the pastoral letters, right? So 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, where Paul is uh, giving these qualifications to the leaders in the church, and one of them is that they be the husband of one wife. <laughs> okay, well, doesn't that mean that there are Christians there that are polygamists? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, and and so it the the idea of sexual they ethics is is Puritanism, not necessarily core gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I I think if we call people to radical generosity, um, that would be a lot better discipleship. Mm-hmm. Then let's just go back. I don't, want to, I don't want to go. This is this is kind of what you do. You run really quickly over something that is really important, and it's <laughs> a great insight. I don't mean to. <laughs> and then I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa! We can't. We gotta. We gotta stay there for a second. You just said. You just pointed out that, on, at least on a certain reading of that passage, that in the New Testament church in that setting, they made room for the polygamists, and yet they called the leaders to be monogamists. Right. And so they made room for both. Mm-hmm. Like there's this biblical calling to monogamy, um, and they respected that, but they made space for people who were polygamists because the gospel the gospel is bigger than biblical sexual ethics. Yep. Yeah. It I supersedes mean, that. Right. Would uh, Would you consider owning a slave moral or immoral? I would consider it to be immoral. Okay. Well, Philemon. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, there were people who owned slaves who were Christians in the first century. And Paul didn't say, you need to turn these guys loose. What are you doing? Right. Right. Um, would you consider, you know, killing someone in the Roman army or, you know, being a, Ro- a Roman soldier, you know, is that moral or immoral? Hey, man, if you if you were a Jew and you saw it's like, hey, this centurion's now your brother. He's going to be sitting next to you in the pew. Mm-hmm. No way, you know this guy's out. If he doesn't, if he hasn't defected and is on the run from the Roman army right now, he has no place next to me. I mean, we 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 just don't appreciate how very challenging ethically that the gospel was to the people in the first century. Uh, we we really distance ourselves from these poor Jews who are being called to be in a faith community with uncircumcised people who continued to eat meat that were sacrificed to idols, who served in the Roman army, who, if ordered, would go and quell a Jewish uprising and kill Jews. Mm-hmm. Man, that's that had to have been just crushing for them. They had to embrace that, that this call is beyond conforming to a moral standard, mm-hmm. even if it's one that they believe came from God. That's, I think that's the only fair reading of the, just the growth of the gospel. The fact that we, here we are Gentiles celebrating a relationship with the Jewish God. Mm-hmm. Would you say that morality, we're going we're gonna to end it soon, but uh, would you say that morality is one of the um, elemental principles of the world? We've been talking in the podcast. Yeah about how there's authority and there's conformity. And you've, you've said before that these the elemental principles of the world are at least these two things, may not be only these two mm-hmm. things. And morality is is maybe one of those things. Well, that, morality is that tool. We, we talked about how rules 
mm-hmm. are the mm-hmm. are the the servants, if you will, of the elementary principles of the world. I mean, and that's and this is a critique of the of the gospel that atheists make is that you know religions just serve to advance the patriarchy. They they really endorse the authority of the of the powers that be and keep the oppressed under. Karl Marx would have said that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not wrong uh, as far as a historical critique. But Christianity is the antithesis of that in that it undermines the implicit human authority and the cultural conformity. It replaces that with this faith working through love. And so that will coincide with those requirements sometimes, and other times it will run against it. But morality is just a statement of what our culture expects us to conform to, to be considered good. Mm-hmm. You know, so like back to certain words, right? Certain words are, are will get you an R rating in a, in a movie mm-hmm. because they refer to things that are vulgar or profane, but really they're just a set of, of phonics mm-hmm. kind of benign in and of themselves. They only have value based on what humans assign them. Mm-hmm. And so there, this is a rule, you know, thou shalt not say the F bomb in a Disney animated movie mm-hmm. is a rule that is, that comes out of, this notion of what it means to be a good person or what it means to be innocent and things like that. Okay. Um, so they're not, they're not necessarily morality is not necessarily the, um, elementary principles of the world. It is according to the elementary principles of the world, Paul would say. So Paul, and as in Colossians two, he says, don't, don't conform to these prohibitions according to the elementary principles of the world. And Mm -hmm. so, when Jesus disarmed the elementary principles of the world, what that means is is that all of those taboos, all of those uh, threats and warnings and all of that, they all are swept away at the cross. That there's no threat, you know, that what's the worst authority can do to you? Kill you. Right. You know, what, what's the worst society can do to you? Ostracize you, vilify you. Jesus already went there, you know. He already went outside the camp. The author of the, of the letter to the Hebrews says, now let us go outside the camp and worship him. Mm-hmm. I mean, here are people who are being excluded from synagogue. They're being excluded from access to the temple, and they're beginning to buckle under the pressure. And the Hebrew writer says, Jesus was sacrificed outside the camp. Go to him. Mm-hmm. Go to him there, you see. And so now whatever society may do to us is just a fellowship with our Lord. Whatever authority may do to us is just a fellowship with our Lord. And so the elementary principles of the world, they've got no teeth now, um, which is why it's so important that we transcend morality as it's as some compelling force in and of itself. If we coincide with morality, it is purely because we're responding to the faith working through love. Hmm. Okay, that's something to think about. Well, that was a nice long talk. Fun. And I wonder I wonder how we'll get people to listen to this. Hopefully they'll yeah. find it compelling and interesting like I did. Thanks for your time. Let's go have dinner. Yep. Yeah.